And uh, we're going to begin by uh, kind of the theme that we're going to pull out of this is uh, that we really can have hope uh, when we're going through struggles and trials uh, in our life. Uh, Jesus said this, uh, often when people say, well, I don't believe the Bible, I always say, well, I give them this verse. Uh, in this world, you will have trouble, because you know what? Everybody believes that. <laughs> we do. I mean, we, there's a lot of hard things that we need to deal with in life. I mean, if you ever just sit down and actually really listen to people, instead of just judging them and, you know, thinking, put them in a box, or something, if you really listen to people, you realize that everybody has their pain. Uh, everybody has their story of hardship and, and suffering, and uh, granted, some people experience much more difficult lives than others, but I mean, it is very true that in this world, uh, there is hardship and trouble, and some of you may be here today, and you're going through a difficult time. Uh, you're going through maybe a difficult financial time in your life. Uh, you're just having a hard time making ends meet, and the bills seem to be more than your bank, and you keep going into your line of credit, into your MasterCard, and the interest is huge, and, and you're just like, this is bad. Uh, some of you might be going through uh, health difficulties. A doctor's giving you bad news, or you're just struggling with, with, you know, your body's not working the way it should. I mean, in this world, we will have trouble. Some of you might be going through relationship trouble. You know, marriage isn't quite going. Relationships with other people are, are grinding and not going uh, all that well. I mean, in this world, we will have trouble. That is entirely true, but it's very interesting that when Jesus said that, he houses this phrase in words of hope. I mean, look at in context what he says. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Because that's where our peace is found. It's in Jesus, not in our things and not in our stuff or our money. It's in Jesus that we find our peace. Then he says, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That even in the midst of difficulty, we can have peace and joy. And there's a sense of being an overcomer because we have Christ in our lives. And that we are in Christ, remember, seated with him in the heavenly realms at the right hand of God. Uh, Paul knew about this in 2 Corinthians 7, 4. Again, this, this dichotomy here. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. So he, the idea of trouble yet with joy and encouragement. And, and it's this weird thing that sometimes as we walk in this life, we have this heart that is so heavy, yet at the same time there's joy and, and encouragement because Christ is at work even when we are going through uh, difficult times. Now let's read our passage. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And there's a lot in that, and we could do probably a whole bunch of sermons, but we're going to cover this today. And it begins, with all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will. Uh, God houses all wisdom and understanding. I mean, there are so many times in our lives we need wisdom. And there are times when we need understanding. 
Because uh, we, we are faced like so many times in life with like, what should I do here? Or how should I work this? Or what's the best way this can, I mean, we need wisdom and understanding. And there's one place we should all immediately go first. And that is to God. Uh, he has all wisdom and understanding. I love this verse in Colossians 2, 3 that says, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I mean, what situation are you dealing with right now in your life where you need wisdom? Uh, what situation are you dealing with where you just need a greater understanding or you got to make this big, I mean, what is it? Have you brought that to Christ? Have you brought that to Jesus to, to ask him for wisdom? Because God is a God who loves his kids and he loves to give wisdom. He loves to give this. I mean, this book is full of wisdom. When you're trying to make a decision, you should always open this book and say, hey, what does the word of God say? I mean, this book's like Proverbs that are just covered with all kinds of wisdoms about how to do life. I mean, are you turning to the word of God? And God also is a God who speaks. He's not a God who's silent. Uh, the Bible says, if you ask for wisdom, he will give wisdom, that, that he is a, uh, a God who speaks to his sheep, that my sheep will hear his voice, Jesus says. I mean, have you been going to Jesus for wisdom? And this is really important because even decisions where we think, oh, I know what to do here, doesn't always mean it's the right decision. Proverbs 14.12, and actually Proverbs 16.25, it's the exact same verse that for some reason, I guess God thought we needed to hear this twice. But same verses in two different places in Proverbs, and it says this, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end leads to death. And there's sometimes we're like, I know what to do, it's exactly, but it's like, did you check with God and his wisdom to make sure that's really the right way you should go? Because sometimes we're like, I know exactly what to do, and you head down to the path, like, why did this end in trouble, death, and hardship? Maybe because you didn't check in with the one who was all wise. I and mean, just to be constantly on our hearts that, God, would you give me wisdom? God, would you help me make this decision? God, what does your word say? And that's that phrase we always keep going to in this church is, where is it written? And so uh, Proverbs 14, 12, we need wisdom. And we're never going to tap out his wisdom. I love what Paul said here. He's praying for uh, his church, and this is what we pray for this church in our own lives. He says, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Now, we want to be people who please Jesus in every way, and that requires that we need to walk with wisdom, and we need that wisdom from Jesus. And so, he made known to us the mystery of his will, According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. That he speaks about this mystery that has been made known. And, uh, and the Bible talks a lot about mystery. And a mystery, biblically, is not like what we think of mystery today as something unknowable. In the Bible, mystery is always something that was hidden, but has been revealed. And that mystery is actually Jesus. Uh, in, the, in the work of Jesus. Colossians 2.2 says that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. And, and our text today says, He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And so this mystery is about Christ, and part of this mystery is that one day, everything will be unified under Christ. 
Let me read this in the New Living Translation. Now, sometimes this Ephesians 1 passage can be difficult, and sometimes you may be reading your Bible, and you're like, man, I don't really understand what they're trying to say. Sometimes it can be helpful to grab like a thought-for-thought translation, like the New Living Translation, read it, because it can help you come to a better understanding of what is being, being said. And the New Living Translation puts it this way. Uh, God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. And there are many verses in the Bible that talk about this idea that one day that everything in this entire universe verse will be brought under the authority of Christ. And when we talk about the authority of Christ, we're not talking about some tyrannical kind of power. And we talk about in this church a lot that, that Jesus, that God is, he's 100% love and 100% power. He's not 90% love and is sort of corrupt some of the time. He's always loving and always powerful in everything he does. And one day, everything is going to be under his rule and reign. And here's just some of the verses that talk about that. Uh, Philippians 2 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Or Colossians 1, through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. That Jesus on the cross purchased uh, the, the, the authority over everything as he conquered sin, Satan, and death. And his kingdom is growing and his kingdom is rising and gaining more strength. But one day, his kingdom will encompass everything. And this is the day that we look forward to. And this is one of the reasons we can't have hope in our trouble. Because we know one day, there is not going to be any more trouble because everything will be under Christ. I mean, this beautiful picture in Revelation 21, when, when one day God is going to create a new heaven, a new earth, and heaven and earth will finally be married in this wonderful union. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. Not meaning that there's not going to be another ocean, but the idea of the sea to the Jews is always a scary thing, meaning there's not going to be anything scary anymore. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new, and this is coming. We begin to see pictures of it now as God is working in his kingdom, but one day his kingdom is going to be forever and completely covering this universe, and there is not going to be another itty-bitty piece of pain. We won't have to hear you've got cancer. You won't have to hear, sorry, you're overdraft in your bank account. Sorry, you're not going to hear my friend just got divorced or, you know, I want a divorce from you. There will be none of that. It's going to be beautiful and wonderful. And all this can be had if you have a relationship with Jesus. Because this is God's home, and if you want to be a part of God's home, you need, you need to love God. And, and if you love God and love Jesus and have surrendered to him, this is what we get to look forward to. Uh, Daniel had a, a picture of what this would look like. One day... In the book of Daniel, chapter 2, King Nebi, 
Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about this huge statue which represented all these different empires. And in this dream, he sees this gigantic rock kind of come out of nowhere and it, and it smashes the toes of the statue. And the whole statue crumbles and, and all of a sudden this rock, after it crushes the statue, grows into a huge mountain and, and takes over the whole world. And, and he's wondering, what in the world is this dream? If you remember the story. And he's trying to figure it out, and he wants an interpretation. No one can interpret it, so he says, I'm going to kill all the wise men because no one can figure this out for me. But God, knowing all wisdom and having all understanding, gives the interpretation to a guy named Daniel who brings it to King Nebuchadnezzar and describes what this rock is. And he says this, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. I mean, all our hopes to have the right politicians and the right government in place, where it's like, maybe this government will do it. I mean, no government's ever going to do it until we get this government, when Jesus is in charge of the universe. Because then, only then, will everything be just and everything righteous and everything done in complete love and grace. And man, I am looking forward to this. And it helps me get through the hardships of life because when you have something to look forward to, it just makes it easier. I mean, if it's just, you just think about never ending, ending, you just want to give up. But we know that this is coming for those who love Jesus. Romans 8.18 says it this way, what we suffer now is nothing. That's crazy. What we suffer now is nothing. And I've heard some of the most horrible stories as a pastor. Uh, we read some of the most horrible stories. How in the world could God, in his word, say what we suffer now is nothing? He, he says it this way, that is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later, that this new kingdom is going to be so glorious and wonderful that the worst kind of suffering is going to almost seem as nothing. Now that must mean it's got to be really super duper glorious for us to look back and say that was nothing. Teresa of Avalon famously said this, from heaven even the most miserable life will look like one bad night in an inconvenient hotel. I mean, this is coming. And I hope you know Jesus. I hope you're walking with Jesus. I hope you're in love with Jesus because if you trust Jesus, this is what we have to hope for. And it's going to be beautiful and, and I, just, I just can't wait. But you know, we don't just sit back here and do nothing in the meantime. That we're to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. That right now we are to be working with God, bringing in his kingdom. That what we hope for, we need to try to make a reality now in the way we love people and care for people and help the hurting and help those who are experiencing injustice. That we want to be carriers of his kingdom. Little people that walk around and people look at you and say, well, that's what the kingdom of God is going to be like. And I hope people can see the kingdom of God as they look at you. All right, now for the difficult part. <clears throat> Ephesians 1 says, In him we are also chosen, having been predestined, According to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were first, the first to hope, put our hope in Christ, might be the praise of his glory. Now this passage right here has a lot of different opinions. Generally everyone agrees, but the way they interpret this verse is different. And one of the things we like to do in this church, and we have always done, I always try to do, is give you the breadth of what various Christians think. 
Because we don't want to just live in one little box and only think, you know, one person thinks this, so we're all going to think this, or only read one kind of book. I mean, this is the book we read, but there are lots of different theologians out there who have studied this, who love Jesus, who care about it, and have different opinions. And we like to bring those in so we can have good, loving, theological conversations here. And one thing we try to do in this church, we try to be unified around the essentials. Who Jesus is, that the authority of the word of God, the triune God, the necessity of salvation, those kind of things. But secondary issues, we don't split up over. Uh, We have different people who hold different things where some churches would split up. We try to stay together. Because again, we're to be bringing in the kingdom. Everyone is going to be unified in heaven. So we're like, let's try to do that now because we want to be examples of the kingdom. But when it comes to this text... People will interpret what it means to be chosen and predestined differently. And the idea of how God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, people will say it looks differently depending on some of your beliefs. So I'm going to look at sort of four uh, broad categories as we finish up here. And I'm not going to get too much into detail because we could do gigantic messages on each one about pros and cons, but just kind of throw it out there because I want you to be students of God's word. And good theologians who study and try to research and try to come to your own conclusions. And we have loving conversations over these things in this church. We don't split over these things in this church. So the first way, uh, and probably the most common sort of in Western Christianity, would be the, the Arminian stance of this, of this text. So when it comes to being predestined, being chosen... And by the way, these aren't the only four positions. There's lots of mix in between and variations of either. There's probably hundreds, but these are sort of four broad categories. They would say this, that God chooses or predestines individuals for salvation based upon God's foreseeing that they, out of their free will, would respond to his call. So they would say this about me, because I love Jesus. That God, looking into the future... Knowing whether Jesse would freely choose God or not, predestined him to become a child of God. So before God created the world, he knew what people's decisions would be. He would know whether someone would choose God or reject him. And based on whether they would choose him or reject him, if if they're out of their free will would choose him, he predestines and chooses those people to be children of God, if that makes sense. So people have free will. God looks into the future. And based on their free will decisions, predestines or chooses them for salvation. That's the R. Classic Arminian position, there are sort of modern Arminians who look at it a little bit differently, but this text, that God works out everything in conformity to his will, they would say that God is working in this world where mankind has free will, that's why we have earthquakes, disasters, divorces, trouble, hardships, he's working in this world to bring things into conformity with will, because God is all-powerful, yet respects our free will, he is working to to bring things into conformity with his will. So that is the Arminian position. The other one, which is fairly big in Christianity, these are probably the two biggest ones, would be uh, Calvinism. For Calvinism, they love, uh, Calvinists love the idea of being predestined and chosen. We have some Calvinists in this church. We have lots of Arminians in this church, and we are together, and we love each other. We have some friendly theological conversations, that is for sure, uh, but we hang out together. For them, it means this, that God predetermined who would be saved and who would spend eternity in hell, though that could be defined slightly differently based on what kind of Calvinist you are, based solely on his plan, not our free will. So they would say that I'm a Christian, that I'm a child of God because God irresistibly predestined me to be a child of God. So they would say before God created the world, he predestined certain individuals to become Christians 
and didn't predestine others to not become Christians. So by God predestining some, those come to Jesus, and because he didn't, those will end up in eternity in hell. And they would talk about irresistible grace. That each person that is a Christian has received irresistible grace, that grace that we cannot resist, that ultimately you will become a Christian if God has chosen, chosen you. And so that's how they would look at the idea of being predestined and chosen. So it's not uh, really a lot to do with our free will, though they talk about compatibilism sometimes, but it's really God's choice, and only God's choice. He gives us irresistible grace, and we'll receive them based on that. Now when it comes to that text where it says God works out everything in conformity to his will, most Calvinists, again, there's different brands of them, but uh, they would say everything that happens in our lives and on this earth falls into the perfect plan of God, whether it is good or evil. Uh, John Calvin, uh, straight from the man, said, Men can accomplish nothing except by God's secret command, that they cannot by deliberating accomplish anything except what God has already decreed within himself and determines by a secret discretion. So everything that happens is part of, uh, has been foreordained. And so any earthquake, disaster, hardship, sickness, it's all, in a sense, been foreordained uh, by God, in a sense. They would say God causes it because they try to stay away from that God is actually the cause of evil, but everything is foreordained. So it's very much about God has ordained everything before the world has created. So that's sort of basic Calvinism. Now another one is this called Molinism. This is less known, but people like uh, William Lane Craig, you've heard of him, he's a famous apologist, holds to this, and there are other theologians that do. And the idea of predestined for them is this, that before God created the earth, he knew every free choice that man could possibly make, and then God chose the best world to bring into existence. The idea is this, that uh, they call it middle knowledge, that God, before he creates any world, he knows every decision that we could ever possibly make in any given situation. So he knows if I'm in this situation, I'd make, make this decision, but if this were different, I might make this decision. So Jesse could have a billion different decisions in his life and go a billion different directions, and so could all of you. And so he looks at these trillions of different worlds, possible worlds, okay, because everybody's making different decisions. He looks at trillions of possible worlds that he could create, and he picks, knowing that people have free will, he picks the best world where most people will come to know him. And that would be Molinism. So out of all these worlds, God picks the best one uh, that he can pick out where the most people would know him in their free will. And, and, and so God is, in a sense, sovereign over those worlds because he's the one who predestined and chose that one world. So they would say, Jesse is chosen and predestined because this is the world God chose to create. That in this world, I'm a Christian, but it's possible if you chose another world, I wouldn't be a Christian. But that's Molinism. It's, a, it's, it's not very well known in Christianity. Uh, they would say this, when it comes to working out everything in conforming to his will, again, there would be different ideas in Molinism, but one general idea would be that this is the world that God chose to create, therefore, this is the world that he willed. So everything in this world is working out in the way he willed it, because that was the one he, the world he chose. Now the last one, again, not so well known, but hold, held by some uh, theologians, like Greg Boyd is, Boyd is probably the most famous one. And open theism is this, that God has granted to humanity free will, and in order for the free will to be truly free, the future free will, free will choices of individuals cannot be known ahead of time by God. God voluntarily limits his knowledge of free will choices so that they can remain truly free. And the argument is this. I, this is usually the argument against Calvinism or Arminians that, that they really stand on free will. 
that if an Arminian, because Arminians say that God looked into the future, and he knew what everybody's decisions would be, and then he chooses them based on what their decisions would be, that if God knows your future, can you really be free? So the argument is this, that if God knows that tomorrow I'm going to put on a green shirt, then I cannot actually put on any other shirt than a green shirt because God knows what the future is going to be, and if I pick something else, then God is wrong. So they say, are you really free when God knows the decision you're going to make tomorrow? And it gets really, really complicated. So they say that in certain aspects of our lives, God purposely limits his knowledge so he doesn't know what we're going to do tomorrow. But in other areas of life, like, you know, the cross and the end of the world and, you know, his kingdom, there are certain events that God does know are going to happen. And, and he knows that they're going to happen and he doesn't limit himself there. But certain areas so that we have free will, he limits himself. That's, that's called open theism and it's not very uh, common or, you know, people even put it almost on the edge of uh, being heretical. Some people do. They would say being predestined and being chosen is this, that God doesn't predestine individuals by name, but predestines that they who freely choose Jesus would become children of God. And some more modern Arminius would say this as well, that when God predestines you, it's not like he predestines Jesse as an individual, but that all Christians, anyone who turns to him is predestined to be a child of God and holy and blameless. So it's a corporate thing, not an individual thing. And so they would say that Jesse, because he freely chose Jesus, he was predestined and chosen to become a child of God. And so those are sort of the, the four main ways uh, Christians look at this little text, and you can see why it was complicated. Uh, but this is for your theological mulling over and for interesting conversations after the service, if you wish. All right. Uh, but I will note this. That this verse is very closely related to Romans 8.28. That we know in all things, it says, that God works for the good of those who love him. That in all things, that means what you're dealing with today, the trouble you're facing today, uh, that God is working for the good of those who love him. And for God to work for the good, it means that there are things in your life that God would like differently. I mean, this text implies that not everything that happens to us is God's good and perfect plan. If everything that happened to us was God's good and perfect plan, why would God have to work good out of it if it was his good and perfect plan in the first place, right? Clearly, the Bible tells us that there are things that happen to us that are not in God's perfect plan, that are not part of his perfect will for us. Uh, tons of verses on this, but let me just give you a few, where things happen that are not God's will, and therefore God can, out of things where it's not his will, bring about good. Jeremiah 8, God says, why then have these people turned from me away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit. They refuse to listen. I mean, these guys, God is calling, but they're resisting his will. Or Isaiah 63.10, they rebelled against him and grieved his Holy Spirit. Or Luke 7, the Pharisees and experts in religious law rejected God's plan for them. They rejected God's plan. They rejected God's perfect will and plan for them. Acts 7, must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestor did, and so did you, or that would maybe be too controversial to put up right now, but uh, first going to the end, uh, Timothy 2, 4, God wants all people to be saved. There are certain things that God wants that don't happen, and there are things in our lives that are not into God's perfect plan. This is why he has to work good out of them. If it was perfect in the first place, God wouldn't work good out of them because he would be wrecking something that was already perfect, right? There are things for us that have been caused by sin, Satan, and death, and the enemy, and our own corruption, and this is why we have trouble in this world, 
But out of that, God can bring good. And this is where that hope comes back in to tie this all in here. That God can bring hope. And God can bring good out of our struggles. Because our God is that big and that amazing. I mean, there's so many stories, but I'll just finish with the, the one here. In the book of Acts, we see, you remember Paul is shipwrecked, which was not a good thing for him. I mean, being shipwrecked in the middle of the ocean, having to swim to shore, and you know, all these, with all these criminals. I mean, that's not necessarily a good thing. It's a, it's a horrible thing that happened, but God used this horrible thing for a really good purpose. Because now he's on this island, which he didn't mean to go, but because of this disaster, God uses the disaster for good. And look what happens on the island. Paul meets the, chi the chief official on the island, and it says that he welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. I need like a nurse, Ruth. What's that? Yeah, uh, A bad thing, okay? Uh, Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hand on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. Like everybody on the island that came to Paul was healed by the power of Jesus. And that's a good thing. Out of a bad thing. That he is shipwrecked and swimming to shore. And he's like, oh, this is a nightmare. This is horrible. And out of that, God says, I'm going to bring something good. And everyone on the island that comes to him is healed. And this is the same with us. That when you feel like you're shipwrecked and you feel like everything is falling apart, God will bring about good. It doesn't mean that good is going to outweigh the bad. Because sometimes hard things happen. It doesn't mean we always get to see it perfectly. But this is a promise. That God is bringing about good in some way. Sometimes we just need to have keen eyes and say, God, where are you working? How are you bringing about good? Because we have a good God. Again, God is not an evil God. He is absolutely 100% good. And he loves you as his children. And he wants to bring good in that. And so if you're going through struggles today, I mean, have hope. Because you have a source of wisdom that is unbelievable. Uh, because God is working things out for good. And I already forgot my other point, so <coughs> we'll pray. See how quickly I forget a sermon, I don't blame you if you forget them either. <laughs> God, we thank you that you're awesome, and we thank you that you walk with us. Uh, God, we thank you that you, um, that you uh, work in our troubles and in our hardships. And God, I just pray over each person in this room who is going through hardship today. Whether it's financial pain, whether it is relational pain, whether it's physical pain. God, we pray that this promise of working good would become a reality that is so clear in their lives. God, I pray you give them keen eyes to see what you are doing. God, how you are working. And God, how you are ministering in this situation. God, we pray for peace over lives. We pray for strength. We pray for your grace. We pray for your love. God, we love you so much. We thank you for your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.